0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you for the wonderful worship this morning. I wonder how many of you remember the game called Mercy. You know what I'm talking about? We'd we'd play it on the playground at recess or maybe to entertain us on the bus on the way to school, but it's this game where two people would grab hands, you'd interlock your fingers, and then you would just twist and bend and contort that person's arm until they surrendered by shouting out, Mercy! It was the perfect power play move, right? To inflict pain on someone without necessarily getting in trouble. But the point is that saying mercy was asking the person who has the power to punish you or to harm you to show compassion, to show mercy instead. Uh, If we go back another generation... Maybe instead of crying for mercy, you guys remember being tortured with your arm behind your back until you cried out, okay. uncle, <laughs> right? It's a different word, but it's, it's the same idea. And here's the thing, I just, I think that sometimes people get the impression that they are playing a game, a cosmic game of mercy with an all-powerful bully of a god, It's like they believe that God is the source of their pain and their struggle. And so they'll say things like, if God is real and He's all-powerful, then he, He must not really be all that good. Or else why would He allow such awful things to take place out in this world? I mean, haven't we all cried out for mercy loud enough, for long enough, And so in their mind, God is both the source of our pain and the source of our relief. The problem with that story is it refuses to accept that maybe, just maybe, the agony and the struggles that we all experience is due to our lack of character and not God's. You know, more than ever before, we've developed a culture in our society of blame shifting, right? Of of deflecting responsibility onto other people so that we don't have to admit that something might just be broken inside of us. You see, God isn't the author of evil, but his character and his holiness is what defines it. In other words, just like there's no such thing as darkness, you guys know this? Right Darkness isn't a thing. It doesn't really exist. You can't flip on a switch and turn on darkness, right? Darkness is simply the absence of light. And therefore, darkness does not have the ability to overpower the light. It's just the opposite. When the light is shown into the darkness, the darkness runs. The darkness scatters. The darkness disappears because it has no power over the light. And in the same way, evil is defined by its relationship to God's holiness. Evil is a lack of holiness. It is darkness. It is a noticeable absence of God's goodness. Maybe a more accurate way to say that is that it is goodness that has been spoiled or tainted by sin. That's the way the Bible describes it. It says that when God created, he created out of his love and his goodness everything that is. All of creation, and we, human beings, we were created uniquely. We were uniquely designed as eternal image bearers for the glory of God. We were given the ability to walk in relationship with God, to talk with Him, to rule and reign over creation with Him. But instead of choosing to trust that His Word was for our ultimate good, we chose... And we still choose, to this day, our own way, thinking that it is going to bring greater happiness, greater satisfaction, greater pleasures. And at the heart of those decisions is the idea that we know better than God does. And so we walk away. We walk away from His love. We walk away from His goodness. We walk away from His holiness into the darkness, which is what the Bible calls sin. And the fruit of sin, the result of sin, is death. It's what we deserve. Death and damnation in an eternal hell. So whether we realize it or not, what we all need from God is mercy. We should we all be crying out for mercy? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines mercy as compassion or forbearance. Uh, specifically, in our, in our case, in the spiritual sense, we're talking about a divine compassion or forbearance. And in case you don't understand what forbearance means, you click on that one and it takes you to another link. It says that it is a refraining from the enforcement of something such as a debt, a right, or an obligation that is due. So do you see why we all need God's mercy? When given the choice, we looked at a holy God who loves us, who desires relationship with us, and we shook our fist in his face and said, I don't want anything to do with you or your good and your perfect law, and we rebelled against him in sin, resulting in death. So we are helpless. We are hopeless unless God shows us compassion and forbearance, refraining from the punishment of death and damnation that is rightfully due to all of us. We all are in need of God's mercy. Here's the good news. God delights in showing and demonstrating his love and his compassion for us by showing us mercy. And the mercy which God provides is incalculable. <laughs> it is immeasurable. We we read about it all throughout the pages of scripture, friends, God is the giver of mercy. And that's our big idea that that we're looking at today. God is the giver of mercy. But if we're all guilty of sin, and we all deserve death and damnation, and if God's mercy is so good, and it's so freely given, then the question that we should all really be asking ourselves is, how do I receive this mercy? How is it that that mercy comes to me? And that's the question that King David would have been struggling with uh, after the sickening events that we talked about last week from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Uh, so if you weren't here, I would highly recommend that you, you go back and, and either stream the, the audio or, or the video from uh, Facebook or YouTube so you get a better understanding of that. But here's the quick version. Okay, here's the cliff notes. David abused his power and his position as king by sexually assaulting a woman named Bathsheba and Bathsheba becomes pregnant because of this and so David calls back her husband Uriah who is on the battle lines he calls him back from deployment and he tries to get him to go home and sleep with his wife but Uriah refuses to do this and so David again abuses his power and his position as king by ordering that Uriah's fellow soldiers out on the battlefield abandon him in the middle of battle so that he would be killed. King David orders Uriah's execution, all in an attempt to cover up his sin. King David is the man who, in Acts 13, verse 22, it says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And yet, in just one chapter of 2 Samuel, We find King David breaking five of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and you shall not bear false witness, you shall not lie. How is that? How is it that someone who has sinned so egregiously against the Lord can then be called a man after God's own heart? The answer, we find, is in confession. When confronted with his sin, David was quick to confess and to renew his relationship with the Lord. And that's why we've titled the series, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. And for the rest of this series, we're going to be looking at what is one of the most well-known passages Uh, when it comes to the topic of confession. So if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bible or your Bible app, if you want to open that up, and find yourself in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. See, after a year or so of thinking that they'd gotten away with it, thinking that he had covered up and hidden his sin, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to expose and to confront David's sin, and this psalm, Psalm 51, is written as a response. And this is why if you look at the heading of Psalm 51, it reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so this is the point in the story where David is wrestling with this question, how could I possibly receive God's mercy after all that I have done. And there are two things that we see him do. There's two things that likewise we must do in order to obtain God's immeasurable mercy. The first thing is to appeal to the character of God. In order to receive God's mercy, we must appeal to the character of God. Let's read the first verse of this together. David says... Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So David doesn't appeal to anything that he'd ever done to serve the Lord. He doesn't talk about his faith as a child and the way he grew up. He doesn't talk about his commitment as a shepherd or his victory over Goliath. He doesn't talk about the way he showed mercy to Saul when he had the opportunity to kill the previous king who was trying to kill him. He he doesn't talk about the passion of his worship. You remember his own wife was embarrassed at the passion of his worship. He doesn't talk about the countless times that his life was on the line in battle as he is fighting for God's people and the renown of God's name. He doesn't talk about any of that. He knows that None of it will change the fact that he is guilty of sin before a holy God. Nothing could remotely justify anything that he had done. And so in this moment, David doesn't do anything to appeal to his own character, his own fickle, foolish, failed character. Instead, he appeals only to the character of God. See, true confession begins with a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And so David pleads. He says, have mercy, O God. Why? Because of your steadfast love. Because of your immeasurable mercy. Because of who you are. Not because of who I am. The word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. And it can be a word that's hard to translate into English because it actually combines a number of ideas of love and generosity and enduring commitment all kind of bundled in this one word. But we see it all throughout the Bible. So, for example, when Ruth's husband dies, uh, and along with him his brother and his father, there's no one left to care for her. All she has is her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi begs her to go back to her family and to get all the care that she needs from them, but Ruth refuses. She says, I'm not going to do that, so she stays to care for her mother-in-law, Naomi, even though Naomi has nothing to offer her. And as people watch Ruth do this, as they watch Ruth carry out her promise over time, They call it an act of chesed. They call it an act of loving kindness. You see what I'm saying? This this type of love, it doesn't depend on the faithfulness of the person that is receiving it. It is completely based on the character of the person giving it. It's not something given when one person deserves it or can keep their end of the deal. It's freely given because it is connected to the faithfulness of the promise maker. That's the type of loyal love that we are talking about. It's the type of love that God demonstrates in his word to his people over and over and over again. Another great example of this, when the Israelites are on their way to the promised land, right after fleeing from Egypt, They send spies into the land of Canaan who come back with an incredible report about the land itself, right? The the land is amazing. It is flowing with milk and honey. There's just one problem. The people there are giants. They're big. And we don't think that we have the ability to overtake those people and claim the land that God has promised us. So as a result, the people... They get angry and they rebel against their leader Moses and they attempt to stone him to death until the Lord steps in but then get this okay after all that happens after they try to stone Moses Moses prays and he pleads with God to forgive the people for their lack of faith and rebellion this is what this what it says in numbers 14 Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven the people from Egypt until now. In other words, don't forgive them because they deserve it. They don't. Forgive them because it is consistent with your character. It is consistent with who you are. This is also what we read together earlier in the service from Psalm 136, where it says repeatedly, that everything good comes from God because of his chesed because of his steadfast love his steadfast love which endures forever see when we confess our sin to God we are not suggesting that we deserve his mercy instead we are admitting that while our lives can be like a roller coaster Rapidly swinging from faithful to faithless, his divine character remains the same. And it is fully committed to demonstrating his loving kindness. Now the next thing we see David appeal to is God's abundant mercy. This is another important attribute of God's character, right? Because just like God is infinite and he is immeasurable, God's mercy is immeasurable it's what we sang about earlier. What love could remember. No wrongs we have done. Omniscient. All-knowing. Yet he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. More. Psalm 103 captures the same idea. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. You understand what that's saying? Like, east and west are opposite directions. I don't know if this is accurate geographically, but I'm east and west, right? They go the opposite ways, and that's different from north and south, right? If you travel north far enough, you'll reach the North Pole, and then eventually you're going to be going south, right? East and west never meet. You can never start heading east, and then eventually the next step that you take is west it doesn't occur east is always east and west is always west and there's an infinite amount of space between them that's how great god separates you from your sin when you trust in jesus as far as the east is from the west According to his chesed, according to his steadfast love and his infinite grace and his mercy, your sins are removed never to meet again. And this is what leads to the last request David makes in this verse, which is to blot out his transgressions. Uh, This is actually an accounting term, uh, a bookkeeping term, right? So the idea behind this thought is is that... uh, God is keeping a ledger of, of every one of our sins, recording our sins, our transgressions, every debt that is owed to the Lord. And so David pleads with God, blot it out. Well, they don't have like an eraser, right? We're talking about ink on parchment. And so in order to correct a ledger, you had to either blot the line item by smudging the ink if it was still wet enough to do that, or by covering it with more ink. And so the idea that David describes is that God is the divine bookkeeper. He's keeping track of everything, every one of our sins, our transgressions, our debts, but that he can blot out the black ink of our sin with the red blood of Jesus, covering over our sins Once and for all, never to come up again. David appeals to God's character in his steadfast love and kindness, in his abundant mercy, to completely blot out any record of his sins. And, brothers and sisters, what sin is greater than the Lord's mercy? What failure of ours is bigger than God is? There is none. There is none. But you must be honest about your sinfulness. You must come before the Lord with humility, with a broken and contrite heart, not appealing to your character, not thinking about all the things that you've done for the Lord as if we deserve to be forgiven. You understand, we can never put God in a position where he owes us anything let alone salvation. So instead, we come before him empty-handed, desperate, desperate, appealing only to his divine character, to who he is. And because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, we can call on Him for forgiveness. How do we receive God's mercy? By appealing to the character of God and God alone. But then also by appealing to the cleansing power of God. And so that's our second point today We obtain God's mercy by appealing to the cleansing power of God. Let's read verse 2. David continues, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, the word of God that was delivered through the prophet Nathan, it acted like a mirror to show David just how dirty, He was, having sinned against the Lord. You know, if you ever watch a kid playing outside in the dirt, they are a mess. They get filthy, they get smelly, and they have no idea how bad it is, how dirty they are, because they're just having fun, right? They're just living life. They're like a pig in the mud. I'm finding out it doesn't get much better as they turn into teenagers. (laughs) I actually stink even worse. <laughs> it's harder to compel them into the bathtub. But hopefully, when you bring that child into the bathroom and you put them in front of the bathroom mirror, they can see the dirt on their face and in their hair. And then as they start washing their hands in the sink and the muddy water begins swirling down the drain, they're like, ew. <laughs> Because now they can see it. They can see just how dirty they were. That, that's what's happening in King David's life. He, he was living in sin. He, he thought that he had gotten away with it. He's just a pig in the mud having fun. Until Nathan confronts him in his sin with God's word. And it reflected truth upon his life. It was the light of God shining into the blackness of his soul and it enabled him to see just how dirty he was. And when he sees it, when he understands it for what it is, he understands that it's going to take more than just just a rinse, right? I mean, if he had said, clean me, clean me off, just dust me off, rinse me off because the sin that i see it's superficial it's just on the outside that's that's not what he says he says wash me thoroughly which implies a deeper level of cleaning you understand right it, it carries with it the idea of kneading the clothing or beating the clothing uh, you can picture maybe one of those old washboards right where they're like ringing on that thing Let me put it like this. Sin hadn't just splashed onto David, leaving a mark that needed to be washed off the surface. It had penetrated deep down into the very fabric of his being. Sin had left a stain. And it was going to take a thorough and complete washing in order to make him clean. Now, when it comes to our sins, the same thing is true. It it takes more than a Tide stick or bleach or OxyClean, whatever you use. It's not going to do the trick. In fact, we can't do it. We need a miracle. We need God's mercy to do for us and in us what we simply cannot do ourselves. That's one of the reasons that we read about Jesus doing these miracles all throughout the gospel, right? It is a demonstration of God's compassion, his mercy, and his power to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like when Jesus is uh, leaving Jericho in Mark 10, he's with his disciples, and we read about this man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar who's sitting on the side of the road. And we read this from Mark 10, starting in verse 47. When he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many people rebuked him, telling him, be silent. Oh, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. See, he was desperate. He was powerless to change his own condition. He needed a miracle. He needed the immeasurable mercy of God to bring him a full and complete Healing and the same thing is true for us, friends. We cannot cleanse ourselves of our sin any more than a blind man can restore his own vision. We are powerless, we are desperately in need of a miracle in order to experience the immeasurable grace and mercy of God in our lives being brought to a full and complete healing by the power of Jesus Christ. And you can have that miracle today because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When the mirror of God's word reflects back to you sin that's in your life, sin that you've tucked down deep, sin that you've tried to cover up, sin that you think you've gotten away with. And it reveals that sin. And you know that there is something that's broken that you just can't fix. You tried, and you can't do it. You can't put it all back together. When you understand that it's not just superficial dirt, but that sin has become a stain penetrating deep down into your soul, You will do whatever it takes to be washed clean of that sin. You will do whatever it takes to be saved. Just like Bartimaeus, just like King David, you will cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And you won't be worried about what your friends think about you. You won't be worried about how you look or how you sound to other people. You will do whatever it takes to get the attention of the one who has the power to heal you from the inside out. That's why my heart is bursting for joy for Haley and for Kaylee who are publicly expressing their faith, declaring before God, before the church, before their friends and their family, that their lives have been changed by Jesus because they've trusted in him as their Lord and their Savior, and they have been washed clean, forgiven. Their sins have been blotted out as far as the east is from the west. They've been adopted into this eternal heavenly family. Hallelujah. Praise God. The promise of the gospel is this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you too will be saved. God is the giver of mercy. We receive that mercy by appealing to the character of God and by appealing to the cleansing power of God. Whether you're dealing with big giant sins that have been tormenting you for a long time or small, seemingly insignificant sins. It doesn't matter. God has what your soul needs if you will just come to him and you will confess. And let me just say this as we close. Maybe this will be helpful for you as you process this idea of confession. Confession is is just bringing your heart into alignment with God's heart, okay? Because God is all-knowing. He already knows all of your sins. So you're not going to confess your sin and then God's going to be like, what? No way. I'm so surprised by this. I'm really disappointed in you. He already knows. So confessing your sin isn't about Filling God in on something terrible that he doesn't know about it's simply bringing your heart into alignment, into agreement with God's heart and saying I see it now you know I, I couldn't before I was, I was blind to it oh God but I see it I see it in my life. I see it with your eyes, and I hate it. I don't want anything separating us, getting in the way of our relationship, Lord. And so I confess, I give it to you. Blot out my sins. Take them from me as far as the east is from the west, as if they were never there, and renew my soul. Renew our relationship. You see the difference? And I could tell you this, you know, as a dad, there are times when I know that my kids have done something wrong. There are times when I know they did something bad, something that they shouldn't have. And when they come to me and they confess, they say, Dad, I did this. And I don't even know why, but I did it. Something came over me, but I know it was wrong. Can you forgive me? That's extremely difficult for them. Because they think that they're filling me in on something I don't already know. It's very hard for them to say that, and they're afraid that I'm going to shame them, and I'm going to say, how dare you? I don't do that. I welcome them into my open arms and I embrace them and I say, I know, I know what you did and I'm so glad you came to me. I'm so glad you ran to your father to confess and that's what it's like having a loving relationship with your heavenly father. So can we practice that right now in this moment? As a church family, can, can we turn to him in this, in this moment and just bear our hearts before the Lord? Confess our sin to him. Let him shine his divine light into the darkness, into the deepest, most hidden parts of our hearts. So that we can experience His forgiveness, His loving kindness, His abundant mercy, because we all need it. We all need that, and God is the giver of mercy. Bow your heads and your hearts, Heavenly Father. We thank You for the gift of Your Word today. We confess before you that we are all sinners. We've rebelled against you. We've turned to the things of this world and the desires of our flesh in order to find satisfaction, in order to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And it always fails us. It always lets us down. We are always left wanting more. Because we've sinned against you and your holy character, we deserve death and damnation and hell. But oh God, even while we were still sinners, you loved us and you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place paying the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven and given the Holy Spirit as a deposit of our salvation being raised to new life in Christ just as Jesus was raised from the dead. God, we are thankful today for your uncompromising faithfulness to an unfaithful people, for your steadfast, loving kindness, which endures forever, for your grace and for your mercy, your immeasurable mercy. And now, Father, we call upon you in your character to produce in us what we simply cannot produce in ourselves. Holy Spirit, sift and search our hearts today. Shine your light in there. Reveal any sin that that we need to give up. Father, give us eyes to see your sin the way that you see it. And as we surrender our lives to you, bring us to new life. Father, revive us and renew us with your spirit. Put wind in our sails so that by the power of your spirit in and through our lives, your will would be done here on earth, here in Algonac and beyond as it is in heaven. May we glorify you here and now and forevermore in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit we pray these things today.